recording? I've been recording for a while, but I can, I can cut oh. like my... <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so yeah, um, first thing first, I'm Ron Zakai. This is Lilligate Guide. And today I'm going to be talking with Race Bannon. So how would we start from there? Race, tell us a little about yourself. First, hello. Hello, how are you? <laughs> well, thank you. Thank okay. you very much for doing this. Um, let's see about me. Uh, it sort of depends on what you want to know. Um, I want to know there, everything. <laughs> there's the LGBTQ activist part of me. There is the writer part of me that is part activist, part other things. There's um, um, my corporate life, which I don't talk specifically about, but there's that. Um, there's there's a lot of me. So I guess what I'm most known for is my involvement in um, the leather slash king community. I guess that's probably the best. Um, that is how we've it. met. So we can start from there. Yes. Yeah, we can start from there. <laughs> um, I've been extremely active in that scene since the early 70s because I'm old. Um, I'm 66, so I put that out there. And um, I started out as just a, you know, a gay kinky guy. And then really through some happenstance, which I won't go into right now, uh, in Los Angeles in 1980, um, things kind of changed and I became much more public. I was a lone wolf. I was one of those people that just kind of lived a very private life. Um, I did work as a professional dancer for many years, so that wasn't very private, but um, I, um, I write a lot. I do a lot within um, LGBTQ activism. Uh, I do, uh, uh, I have a book out on self-education because learning is a passion of mine and I am entirely self-educated for the most part. I um, dropped out of college third semester to become a dancer and never went back. So um, I, I climbed all those corporate ladders, et cetera, without a, without a degree. And so I'm actually kind of proud of that. With a lot of grit though, and a lot of tenacity and a lot of resilience, because I think you're taking a, that's a pretty big ladder to climb. You know, it, yes and no. I don't think I consciously climbed that ladder with any kind of strategy. I, I saw opportunities when I, when I got into computers, for example, I, I had been a dancer. I took a temp job to pay bills because I was in between dance jobs and wasn't sure if I was going to keep dancing, actually, and worked at a bank. They had extra budget, and they bought this mainframe computer. And I went to the vice president who ran the org, and I said, who, does, who, who runs that? And she said, oops, sorry, my and um, she said, no, we just had extra budget and we bought it. We don't have anybody to run it. I said, give me a week. <laughs> so I went through all the manuals. She said, oh, I went back to her and said, I can do this. And um, she said, well, can you do a, a simple database? Sure. Can you do word, word processing? Sure. Can you do a simple spreadsheet? Sure. She goes, you have the job. You're, an, you're our new IT manager. Um, so that was literally how I got into computers. It was entirely through seeing an opportunity grabbing it. And I'm a voracious reader. I read constantly. And I think that's kind of what helped me get. I'm curious as, as, as both a follow up and a bit of a, a dive in because a the dancer part is really, really interesting, but we'll wait with that for just a second. I, I know you as an extremely, extremely productive 
producer or deliverable person. Um, I, I know you as a doer. Um, and, and a lot of people that I meet both in my professional life and otherwise are somewhere in a range between the doing and the envisioning. Um, I think grabbing that, and I don't know how old you were when you picked up a mainframe, um, but, but that, is, that is doing, that is picking up something that life presented to you. Not many people do that. Yeah, I, had a, I had a father who, um, I was an only child, father very focused on me. Um, he was an amazing man, a saint and brilliant. Two PhDs, I could go on. He's just wow. a very smart man. And he stuck a book in my hand at a young age and he kept, he said I could do whatever I wanted at a young age. He never dissuaded me from anything that I wanted to do except having a dog. He never wanted me to have a dog. <laughs> um, it's the only thing, you know, the only thing he ever stopped for. I know it sounds strange. Um, it does, it's very specific yeah. for a no. But, um, but he always taught me, you know, I could do whatever I want. And uh, I, I really believe that it was that sort of grounding of you, you can do what you want. Don't let anybody stand in your way. Don't let them ever say no. Um, that kind of made me do it. The other thing is that I'm a big believer. There's a, there's a big blogger. His name is Seth Godin. And he's very big in the marketing world and um, startup world, et cetera. And one of the, his concepts is nothing really matters unless you ship. Mm -hmm. And I never had those words, but whether it's my community activism and LGBTQ life, whether it's uh, my, my work in the leather and kink world, whether it's my work in the polyamory world, whether it's you know software, whether it's self-education and learning, it doesn't matter unless you produce something and send it out into the world. Yeah. And there's such a tendency to fall back on perfectionism, which is impossible. And so you never ship it. You just, that's that novel I always wanted to write. Right. It's that article I always wanted to do. It's that business I always wanted to create, but it never happens. Oh. And so that's, for whatever reason, I adopted the concept of ship early. <laughs> and so that's later. productive. Yeah. Very interesting. So I'm really curious when it comes to the household, because I, I've, we've had many conversations during our relationship, but it actually started from the leather side. I think Mr. Marcus introduced us to each other, but I'm oh, not that entirely, might be true. Yeah. yeah. Ages when, when, when I, when, when, when I had a world and the pageantry of it all, but, but back, but even back then you struck me as a critically reasoned person that applies critically reasoned tools to almost everything. And, and even though we do not necessarily agree on certain things, like a good example is 2016, you and I, um, you're like, no, 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 centrist. By the way, your, your proof point is in the pudding today. We're two days after the election and centrism actually won by a landslide. Um, yeah. And in many ways, I'm like, oh, so voting more is not bluer, but yeah, we might, yeah, exactly. It's going on right now, so. <laughs> I, but the reality is, you know, one of those main assertions back in 2016, the more people would vote the blue or, or the shades of blue will kind of come to the surface, has been shattered. This, this reality now has shown that, that higher numbers of voters is actually more centric. But back to your coming up in your household, how did, I, A, was religion a part of it? And then B, regardless of the answer to number one, uh, how did your father or your household amplify the tool set called critical reasoning because I, I find it there. I find the origin story for most people's capa capabilities yeah. of question marks versus exclamation point to come from home. Yeah, I um, 
I was raised an only child by an amazing father and a horrific mother. So let me put that, my birth mother was a horrific woman. So I'll just put that out there, um, abusive, et cetera. Wow. And um, so my dad was the exact opposite. He was literally a saint walking on the planet. He was absolutely perfection in terms of being a father. I was raised Catholic, quite Catholic, eight years of Catholic school, church every Sunday, um, a father who was so Catholic that he was actually in the seminary until two months before his vows Whoa. and he left. So he was gonna be a priest. And so my father decided for whatever reason, he was never, he was never entirely forthcoming about his reason, but he left two months before his vows. And um, so I grew up in a very, very Catholic household, a very Catholic area, eight years of Catholic school. I have abandoned all that, as you I love know, <laughs> and I, I consider myself, if I have to attach a label to it, an atheist, but um I did get a damn good education in Catholic school. I have to admit, my grammar school education was superb. And I had a father who, in spite of him having, he was a professor and then he ended up in corporate life and he actually started the one of the largest international taxation departments in the world. Um, wow. Had his clients for the Beatles and John Wayne and Ray, <laughs> Ray Kroc and McDonald's. He actually, he actually would do like Ray Kroc of McDonald's Personal tax the question of that, your your path, your yeah. passage towards to the public life, in a way, you already saw a person that was in a public position, or at least being of service to public figures. Did that play in your coming out? I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. not necessarily connected to that, but I'm curious because you saw how that looked like, how fame or how a public persona looks like. I, I did. My dad was a very shy man and not public at all. He might have interacted with those people, but my dad was literally the wallflower at a party, reading a book in the corner. That was my father. I, he was not outgoing at all. And I was not outgoing. I copied him for years and I was absolutely a loner introvert with very little social interaction. So that changed, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, that is not the case anymore. And no, then some. <laughs> no, but, um, but I do think that that upbringing of my dad um, I eschewed Catholicism. I, in my, I, we were in catechism class. I forget, I was maybe seven years old. And I said to the There's nun- There's a class called cataclysm? Catechism in, Catholic, in, Catholic, oh. <laughs> in Catholicism, that's where you learn about your faith. It's catechism. Okay, okay. okay. And um, the nun was teaching it. I, I think I was seven years old. And at one point, I liked this nun. She was very nice to me. I'm one of those people who had really good luck with nuns. It was the lay teachers that were problems, but the nuns were great. And she said something and I said, sister, and I can't remember her name, why can't you be a priest? Oof. And I remember the angst on her face. I, I could see inside her head, she was trying, she was a little bit tortured about what she was about to say. And she said, because that's God's will. And I immediately responded with, well, that doesn't make any sense. You're just as, I mean, I was seven and I already knew that this woman should be in the same place as the man. That, that equality plays a role and should yeah. play a role. So at that point, and from about seven or eight on, I went through the motions of Catholicism, didn't believe a bit of it. I went through the motions. I went every Sunday, I went to 
um, confession, gave him my bullshit sins, um, impure thoughts, blah, blah, blah. I'm a boy, <laughs> of course. I did um, Those are the best kind. And then at, I was 13 and my, my dad and I went to church every Sunday and he sat me down. We had breakfast out every Sunday. I, I ate almost all my meals out with my dad. I, that's why I don't cook. I, I grew up not cooking. And he said, you know, son, you're 13, you're a man. You, um, you get to decide if you want to keep going to church or not. This is my very religious father. Wow. And I said, I don't think I want to. And he said, fine. That was it. That was the entire conversation. Wow. He, I never set foot inside a church again, except I think I went to a couple of weddings. But um, and yeah, I just completely abandoned Catholicism, cold turkey, and you know, couldn't have been happier. But I was given that option by a very worldly father who understood that faith is a personal thing. So um, yeah. On, on, on that on that on that exact thought process so when you say horrific mother very 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 uh, encouraging empowering almost always superbly empowering father uh, and then your internal relationship with religion i won't go to the third one when you go to the label atheism why atheism versus agnosticism why why the i don't know versus nothing is there or um or... i th i don't think there's anything wrong with the label agnostic, it it feels like an equivocation to me personally. <laughs> um, and so I adopt the, the word atheist because functionally I am. I, I, I think of the world in very science-based, practical, fact-based to the best extent I can. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, a higher power of God, of any kind of God, just doesn't come into the equation. Right. Um, so yeah, atheist just feels like a better label for me. Uh, because it's crisper I, I, and it's sharper because of its sharpness, because of its, uh, uh it's definitive. Yeah. It's, 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 Not, it's less an ambiguity. Yeah. It's more of a, okay. Because I, I, I don't, I want it. It's never going to happen, but you have to prove something to me for me to believe it. Well, that's not true. We all believe things that haven't been proven, but the, my my intellectual side says you have to show me something is real before I will believe it, and I can't see that. That cannot happen. No way. Yeah. So um, that's why the equivocation felt a little weird. So I used to use agnostic. That was what I used for years, and then many years ago, I just said, "Ah, atheism feels better." So I it's, it's less wibbly wobbly. I use agnosticism just because finite mind and infinite reality. I think you and I discussed yeah. it something before. Uh, it's it's it can be perceived as a cop out, but but the reality is I will never perceive that infinite power, so I will never have a definition. Much like you said, there's no proof in the pudding, so I cannot even go there. Now let's circle back to that dancing part because I am so curious. It will lead us to the other parts of your career and other facets of your reality now. But the dancer part, I'm really I have not heard that one. So. Yeah, I, I danced professionally for seven years. Um, I thought you knew that. I do not. Um, but so what happened was um, I was a gymnast, a, a very good one, from about the age of eight until 18. And I um, went to University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, on a partial gymnastic scholarship. And um, so I get to college, and I'm a gymnast, and I realize that they want me to dumb down all my classes so I can train more. Right. They want they want gymnastics to be my focus at college. And I just decided that 
I guess I need to give up gymnastics, sadly, because I loved it, because I don't want to dumb down my classes, and I like to think, and I'm in college for other reasons, not just gymnastics. So I gave up the scholarship, um, told my dad I was giving it up. That was no big deal. He thought, you know, you focus on your academics, that's good. But so second semester of college, I decided to take a PE dance class, a modern dance class. And a guest teacher came in and saw me in the class and she pulled me aside. She goes, you're really good. You know, do you wanna be a dance major? <laughs> and, and first she asked, why does your leg go here and do you have perfect center? And I explained all those years of gymnastics. Yeah. I, coached, I coached women's gymnastics for four years. Um, so my body did things that most people's bodies did not do. And so she said, well, if you wanna be a dance major audition, I did, I got in, I became a dance major, just with all these other people that had all this training and I had none, but I got in. And so I called dad and I said, dad, I know I'm an accounting major destined for law, but I just changed my major to dance. And there was silence on the other end of the phone. Oh, no. Oh, no. And I could just tell through gritted teeth, he was like, whatever you want, son, I love you. <laughs> da, 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 da. So third semester, I am a dance major. Wow. <laughs> and I'm doing the dance major things, which is a lot of dance classes along with music theory and all these other things. And a guest teacher comes in again and pulls me aside. And so it's twice it happened. And she said, you're pretty good. Do you want to dance professionally? And I said, sure, I think that would be fun. She goes, and she very quietly said, get out of college now. And I went, what? She goes, you're, you're, you're a man, so you could do it. If I said a woman, you'd be done. If you were a woman, you have no chance, but you're a man. And there's fewer of you in the industry. And I think you could make it. But if you stay another two and a half, three years in college, you're going to be too old and you will not have a career. Wow. And so I took her advice and I left college the next week and moved back up to Chicago, which is the area I'm from, and studied my ass off with three, four classes a day. Whoa. And, <clears throat> you know, I hardcore ballet, modern <coughs> jazz. Um, Eventually started to audition, got roles, did things. Um, and so I danced professionally off and on for seven years. Bartend a little bit in, in between. I, I have water, hold on. Um, and, and that's part of my other life is I always gave, bartended in gay bars. But an um, introvert and, and in yeah. many ways as a voracious learner as you are, you've combined different facets of your life early on, it seems. Like, like yeah. the bartending and the dancing and then the studying. And, and so all of those disseparate, at least on the surface, the separate facets of you were always at least to partial degree there. They were. And I, I, I got into theater in my last, my last year of high school and, um, and I got the lead role right out of the gate in, in our big, we had a big school, five, five and a half thousand students at a high school. It was a Whoa. big school. And so um, it was, and it was Shakespeare. I got, you know, I was playing Sebastian in Twelfth Night. So I got the theater bug and the dance bug. And that also brought me, between gymnastics and theater and dance, that's what brought me out of my shell. Then, I get it. when I went back up to Chicago and to take dance class, I needed to make money. I've always worked since 
I left the home. Um, I, I had been going to a gay bar underage um, and the owner said something about, you know, oh, well, we need a bartender. I said, oh, I could probably do that. He did not know I was underage. So, um, and that was, and the age then was 19. So I was under 19 and they had, Illinois had lowered their age to 19. It's back up to 21 now, I believe. Right. But for a while it was 19. So one of the funny stories is I'm bartending at this bar called the Glory Hole, by the way. That's, <laughs> that was the name of the bar. You, so, no two ways about it. Just that is, that is what the name of the bar is. <laughs> yeah. Now, ostensibly it was named after the first gold mine. <laughs> but we all know that it was a gay bar called the Glory Hall. Um, and um, I remember I, I turned 19 behind the bar and I looked at my boss. I said, wish me happy birthday. He says, how old are you? I said, 19. So he instantly realized I had been working him, <laughs> him for months underage and he didn't fire me. So um, you were a I good was, bartender then. I was a really good bartender. <laughs> I bartended there. I bartended at... Um, Chuck Renslow's big attempt at a dance club called Center Stage. Um, I was one of his bartenders there. I was a backup bartender at the Gold Coast, a really famous leather bar. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that was my bartending and those kinds of jobs was my bread and butter in between dance gigs. Nice. So knowing you and and we do know each other for for a few years and and I am curious. You have what seems to me, at least from my perspective either buffers or partitions or the ability to compartmentalize the three or four main facets of your life. I, I, I know of race Bannon, the author. I know of race Bannon, the activist. I know of race Bannon, the key kink slash leather thought leader. Uh, I know of race Bannon, the, the, your, your day job slash more tech stuff. Uh, and, and they do sit and they uh, inhabit their own space. Now, looking at it from the outside, it seems not, for lack of a better term, schizophrenic on its surface, mm -hmm. but that's not the definition I would want to give it. It seems that there's separate reality with the underpinning of a very inquisitive mind with a, uh, I think that's the bridge between all of those things. You, yeah. you, are the, you are the underpinning of all those personalities, <laughs> obviously, by virtue of being you. Um, care to share a bit about how you do that? Because in many ways, I think you are the future of A, what work would look like, and that's a complete tangent for later, because people will need to have a hand or, or toes in many, many spaces and many, many versions of themselves. And yeah. I think Americans, US Americans specifically, are somewhat behind on the definition of self through my work. And you're almost the opposite. You almost yeah, the opposite. I, I, I try not to define it. Yeah, I do compartmentalize really well. I compartmentalize not only aspects of my life, but even things that are going on. You know, my friends that were just stressing about the election, and they said, "How do you sleep at night?" I said, "I just put it in a box away, and I put it away, and and it's it's I don't think about it until morning." That's I compartmentalize, and I can do that with almost everything. I do that with um, various aspects of my life. I do it with work. So I work in a very, very large company. I don't name the company. Mm -hmm. um, uh, big software company. Uh, I'm a senior director. I'm fairly high up. I'm sort of like, like just under vice president. And, um, and I've done it for many years. It's been my bread and butter. I'm very good. They treat me extremely well. Uh, and I'm entirely out. I'm out positive, HIV positive. I'm out gay. I am out kinky and I'm out poly. So, but the thing is, 
I'm respectful of my workplace. They don't need to know specifics unless they ask me. Right. And one interesting story that the way I compartmentalize comfortably and is my boss, my previous boss called me in and said, I need to talk to you. And I went, okay, into her office. And she sits me down and she goes, so I Googled you. And this is a very shy, kind of conservative woman in my view. Because I Googled you. She said, you lead a very interesting life outside of work. And I went, yeah, I do. Thank, yeah. She goes and she talked about my book and um, some other things, and um, which is on kinky sex. So she mm -hmm. kind of knew. And you can share uh, the name of your book forever is listening to this might as well. It's uh, called learning the, learning the Ropes, A Basic Guide to Safe and Fun BDSM Lovemaking. And um, second edition out in Kindle only will be paper. Um, and then she proceeded to promote me and give me the biggest raise I've ever gotten. And huh. I think that's because I, I was entirely open, no shame around anything that I do. I also don't need to give her specifics, right? right? I don't need to say what I do in a bedroom or what I do. That's irrelevant. And I think if you treat it that way, in a kind of respectful way, both ways, you can live out whatever that is. Um, in most environments, I worked in a very big law firm, typically a conservative environment for years, um, entirely out there. Um, I've been out in every job I've ever had. I've worked a lot in corporate. I've also, I, I owned a book publishing company for many years and I've done a lot of other things, but. Um, Still, by the, by the way, way, a point of, of, of great enviousness. I, I, I find the capability of shipping specifically within the, the, the texture world to be that of worth of, of both praise and therefore envy on my part. Uh, I, I find it extraordinary. I find your work both extraordinary and your pace extraordinary. Maybe I don't, I don't do idle well. You probably figured that out. I, I, I don't do idle well, but I've never finished a book. <laughs> uh, you will. You will. Um, um, on the same question of coming out, I'm really curious because in my own personal life, this idea of coming out poly, in my case, it's polyfidelity. Not that it really matters in a sense. Thruple is a thruple and it does open or raises eyebrows. By the way, more for the gay world than it is in the straight world. And we touched on that in a different conversation, you and I. Uh, it's It is amazing how we are the self-circular firing squad, much like the Democrats. And yet the, the, the straight was like, oh, more love, more love, we got this. Um, but back to that question, where within the poly conversation, within coming out poly, within knowing that you're, can I discuss your relationship or at least the, the structure of being more than one partner? By the way, you may have never had a dog, but you've had puppies. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I could, yeah. I kind of have one actually. But... <laughs> just just, just no. for the record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just a complete side note. Um, I kind of have one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, then just, just how was it to coming out poly? And if anything, on any level, in any space, where was the most friction? Or uh, how did you feel about that? Because I'm curious. My life now and, and, and the reflection within your life. Um, so I was, I've been highly sexual and non-monogamous since day one. I've never been monogamous. I, I knew from the time I was, I was actively gay, like seeking out gay bars, et cetera, at 16. So, um, and I was actively kindred sexual. Kindred spirit, kindred spirit. Yeah. <laughs> kindred spirit, go on. 
and, and I was actively sexual at a very, very young age um, with boys my, my own mm -hmm. age. Um, I went for the other guys just for the record, but go on. I did too. You know what I used to do? This is yeah. terrible. And I, and, but when I was younger, I would go into the newspaper and I would look at the apartment for rent roommate wanted section. And I, even at the age of 16, figured out the code of what it was that they wanted a gay roommate. They couldn't say that. Right. We're talking, you know, a long time ago. And so I figured out the code and I, I got 16, I got a car. My, I was kind of a spoiled child in terms of material possession. I, <laughs> I had a different car every year, 16, 17, 18. Wow. Yeah, I was, materially I was spoiled. So I, I copped to that. I think mentally too, because considering your father was such a driver in learning and doing more, uh, your circumstances are that of reach for more, but, but please keep going. Yeah. Well, no, but so I, what I would do is I would figure out this code, call them up and say, I, I, I might want to be your roommate. And I would go there knowing they were gay and looking for a roommate. And I ended up having sex with every single one of them. <laughs> and I was, I was a very aggressive and I had facial hair. I looked way older than I, than I was. Um, so I, I, Bottom line is I've always been very, very sexual. Even when I had my first relationship, full-fledged relationship at 17, and we were together 14 years, so. Wow. Of, Mine was four I, years at 17. Mine, oh, my, cool. my, my first one was four years at 17, but go on. I love it. <laughs> um, so, but I knew out of the gate, I did not want to be monogamous. And so luckily, all my friends early and my first partner also agreed with that. Um, interestingly, my first partner had come out of the seminary too. <laughs> he had just left the seminary about a month before I met him. To connect two dots real quick, just because there is a, something that seems to be connected because you were kind of hinting on it, at least in your tone. When your father left the seminary, there was a, there was a little bit of gravitas to the, I don't know why. Do you think something in relation to gayness or gay awareness or it, not necessarily the binary of gay versus yeah. not, but no. no. In my dad's case, uh, I, I, if, if those tendencies were there, they were highly repressed and never acknowledged, and I don't even think they would be to him. Um, uh, no, I think he left for other reasons. He just never quite said what those were. Um, and um, my first partner did leave because of being gay. And interestingly for him, he left the seminary, not just because he was gay, but because of the church's hypocrisy and oh. the fact that Every, all the guys at the seminary were having sex all the fucking time. And he said it was, it was just everywhere, all the time, gay sex everywhere. And the hypocrisy that they would then have to sort of pretend that they weren't doing that. And or that it's a sin for others, but for yeah. them it's okay. Or, or the, the expression externally speaking is how dare you, but then again, their mm -hmm. practices indoors are doing it, which is... So, um, so anyway, was, I've always been nominous from day one. Um, it doesn't fit for me. I can't imagine it just doesn't fit. And the offshoot of that was that I always had play buddies. Mm -hmm. And at some point I realized that many of these play buddies were more than buddies. And I happen to believe that love takes many forms, mm -hmm. relationships take many forms. And the people that I was playing with, I was really, really, really close to in many instances. And I had to finally kind of acknowledge that they were beyond just sex buddies. 
they were not yeah. transactional they were not transient there was something yeah. deeper uh, by the way it's it's to bridge and, and please your thoughts on this i when i have this conversation with straight people my analogy is often family like your heart expands the more you expand your family the children you have the the your cousins your aunts whatever whoever you're close to be chosen family otherwise your heart expands so mm -hmm. the idea of polyamory is not that foreign once you kind of dress it up in the idea of a family it's really not like uh, our throuple is, you know, it's not, not it's not even 5% sex. It's 95% home and yeah. household chores and day-to-day -day life and the chagrin of, of, of mundane recursiveness. And that's, that's, that's where the relationship really is. Back to the poly question, where was the thing or the place that had the hardest time with it for you? Externally okay. speaking. Hmm. I've never had lots of pushback from heterosexuals, interestingly. It's usually come from other gay men. It's never come from anybody that I'm very close to, but I have had men in my social circles, you know, imply, oh, you can't make up your mind. Oh, you don't believe in true love. Um, oh, you know, cheating is just a way of life for you. Uh, I could go through the litany of things that you hear. Yeah, I don't hear it nearly as much today. And I also live in San Francisco. So <laughs> <laughs> our circumstances in our city are very much akin. Yeah. And, and aware. what is the joke or at least the meme? And it says like, if you don't have a daddy, a boy, a puppy, a boyfriend and a husband, you're missing out on the San Francisco experience. Yeah. You know, I also, I have expanded my sense of poly um, beyond what most people think. I have, I have a very, very close friend, um, somebody you know, actually, who were together out a lot. And the rumor went, got circulating because um, that we were dating because when people see us, we're, we often kiss, hold hands, hold each other, whatever. We are really friends more than anything, but he's somebody I love dearly. And I consider that part of my poly family, Absolutely. even though, I mean, we, we've had sex, but not in a very long time. And that kind of deep friendship, you know, when when my dad died, you know, he was the very first person to say, do I need to be on a plane and be there with you? And so my concept of poly is way beyond what most people, many people's best friend would fall into my poly thinking because mm -hmm. they love them deeply. They're kind of a, a life partner-ish. And I don't even believe that partners are supposed to be life necessarily. I think people do I come. I think everything is an expiration date. And if I will not necessarily push back, but rather enhance your message, uh, it's very foolish in my mind to not think of things as expiring because even if they are there for the long haul and one of you will die first next to each other, the reality, the invigoration of that relationship needs to be a constant thing. In other words, it's, 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 a, it's a contract you renegotiate by changing next to each other and grow with each other. It's not mm -hmm. something you just expect your person to be there. If anything, the undead statue of most relationships, be it straight or gay, when it comes to just expecting the other side to be there, is that of staleness and that of death. There is, it's, it's the fact that you don't grow together, the fact that you're not renegotiating. I jokingly with my partners, I say, you better think of us as something that about to fail. Because that, invo that evokes the idea of you committing and recommitting to what we are now. I don't want, I want, I don't want the Kevin or Fabrizio of a month ago or two months ago, three months ago. I want them now. I want the mindfulness of now. I, I agree with you. I think that um, the idea of an expiration date, which people don't like that concept, but you're right. It can, 
lasts a lifetime. One partner dies before the other. Technically, that's that relationship is is done, right. you know, in in the physical sense. Um, and but I do think that it's perfectly valid for somebody to come into your life, be very intimate, close, whatever for two, three, four years, and then what for whatever reason you separate, it's a full-fledged success in every Absolutely. way. Absolutely. It's, it's, I don't judge, I judge, I never judge relationships based on longevity. I judge them on quality. And and, and that so, is a factor of depth rather than length. Uh, and, and I think, uh, I don't know where it came from. And I think a lot of people argue with me that it's the Puritan uh, origins of this country. When it comes to conversations about emotions, I am blessed much like yourself with a very, very loving home. In my case, it was both parents. My father was just at the store all the time. My mom was there with us. Uh, but, but we never got anything less than a lot of love. And when I look at love, I'm thinking of it as a, as a it's, it's not linear, it's exponential. In other words, your, your, your capacity or your capabilities of loving just grow and they do so by multipliers, not by additions. Uh, if it's one person addition, like my relationship, Kevin and Fabrizio, when I add those two to my question, they're a multiplier of three now. We have, we have so many relationships that are interconnected between the three of us. I joke, it's a pyramid now. It's not just a triangle. It's not, it's not equilateral between two Four relationships. Yeah, it's, it's the us of, it's, it's us of each one of us on top of the us of all of us. Uh, so it's a multiplier and therefore it's a multiplier worth of stability. It's a multiplier worth of um, challenges, by the way, for the record, nobody, I don't wanna, I don't wanna skim over this idea of, oh great, thruples are just so much more and easy. No, 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 no. The multiplier and difficulty is there the same. By the way, thoughts on that just in general, because for people who look at poly, you'll be like, how do you navigate that? That's a very valid question. I, I think that the practicality of polyamory is more of an issue than the concept of it. In other words, I think it's easy to intimately love 10 people. I think it's logistically difficult to maintain ongoing, always in contact relationships with 10 people. Um, so I, I think made the only resource in life that's actually finite, yep. 10 people are a lot. Yeah. And so, I, but I also consider part of my poly life people that I only see on occasion. So I, a good example is I have one play buddy friend who we absolutely love each other. We've been playing for over 20 years, lives here in San Francisco, um, has his own partner and of longer than that, who actually was my original play buddy. <laughs> 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 then we had a three-way and then da, 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 it's a long story. And we only get together every few months and it's just as important a relationship every time we get together, even though we only have physical contact really three to five times a year. And in between that, we may not talk to each other for weeks. Mm -hmm. So, but he's part of my poly family. So I really, I don't even say family so much because family means to me, they all feel interconnected. So I say, right. I call it my love, my love network. <laughs> How about your love tribe? Because at this point it's, it's pretty dis it's dispersed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, I have a very open view of what poly means and what loving different people means. And I don't, I even in traditional polyamory circles, I find that whether it's a book or a group that addresses polyamory, very often it's very heteronormative to use an overused word, um, relationship paradigms, 
placed on polyamory. There's the whole hierarchical thing. You're a primary, you're a secondary. I don't use any of that. No. I don't believe in primaries and secondaries. I believe I love, love that person this way and I love that person that way. I don't believe in primary and secondaries and I dislike the language even though it's used all the time. It's used all um, the time, but because it's it's all like a vestige of, of patriarchal thinking. Yeah. It's, it's, and, and that that's the part it's probably, for me, I get the same kind of animosity towards the idea of primary or secondary. Uh, I happen to think of, of my relationship, my current relationship as equilateral, but because we agreed on it. It was our conversation, it was our negotiation, it was our dialogue, in our case, I don't know if it's trialogue, but 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 it's our <laughs> trialogue. <laughs> I'm gonna use that, I'm gonna use that. I'll give you credit, I'll give you credit. Please do. Our, our trialogue, I, I always call it binogamy because we, we have two people to choose from. Uh, Latin counting aside, our conversation is ours. And I think a lot of, the, a lot of ways to navigate, at least in my mind and in my feelings, um, when I look at any relationship is come from a place of communication, come from a place of honesty, put things on the table, get build a consensus, use the same terms together or reach the same agreement on which terms to use and go from there. Anything that's imposed or scripted or templated is a horrible origin story. Yep, I agree. I, I also think that I benefited tremendously coming from the Leather and King community at a very young age because I had a lot of models amongst the gay men that I you know, navigated that world with who were absolutely non-monogamous. Very few were monogamous. We're talking even back in the 70s. I rarely, I rarely encountered long-term monogamy amongst gay, gay partners. And um, many of them were poly, even though they didn't use that word. They had a partner and they had a sub and they had a best play buddy and they had they were all very very intimate and loving they didn't necessarily use the poly word but i had that model from a very young age and um i think also there's something about uh, my knee-jerk reaction to my parents relationship which, which was horrible mm -hmm. i lived in a, a screaming household whenever they were in the same room they screamed it was it was awful um, is that a part of your what seems to be a very calm interior because you're very i've seen you conflict resolve before Marcus and I went on, Sir Marcus, and I went on, on, on diet rides and fights and shouting matches. You are a calm presence, even in a face of conflict. Is that where it comes from? Yes, um, for a couple of things. Number one, I think it's a better strategy. So I, I think that calm tends to win, win the day. Um, I lose. But no, but I mean, that's just, that's, I just think it's a better strategy typically. Um, the other thing is that I had a screaming mother. I had a very abusive mother. Long story short, the reason that they divorced is my dad came home one day, witnessed the abuse, said, how long has this been going on? All my life, he divorced her the next day. Whoa. So yeah, so that's my, that story. So I had a, and, and she was mentally ill, I'm sure of that. So I'm, no I, try, I try not to place blame, but there was no love lost at all. So, um, but I had a screaming mother who would literally scream in my face almost every day of my life until I, they got divorced. So anybody who screams at me, I shut down. I go, I just, I just stop. I, 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 there are times I scream back, don't get me wrong, it happens. I've got a fuse on rare occasion, but for the most part, I shut down. I do not respond to screaming at all. And I think part of it is that. So that may be a carryover as to why when I'm doing conflict resolution, and I do it a lot in community. I've seen it, I've seen it. Yeah. I do it at work, I do it also. Um, 
You're very good I, at it too, by the way, just for the record, just for the, your viewers out there. I've seen you dissolve a situation by actually bringing people in de-escalation just by your tone and presenting both views. I've seen it in real life. It's, it's um, and it's something I've perfected, I think, over time because I found that it worked, that if I could be that calm presence amidst turmoil, that somehow I could bring about consensus or at least peace. I, and, I, I, a curiosity, yeah. just, it's going to be tangential and I apologize, but there are several <laughs> things that are clicking for me. Um, we as a community need to have a conversation about our version of the Me Too when it comes to the hypersexualization in bar, when it comes to consent. And, and, and I want to touch something because polyamory was in many ways already acted, played out and experienced by a lot of our, our leather brethren, our leather tribe. Uh, they already, but then again, leather has been the forefront of leather as it was. Leather today is a lot of things. Leather today is, is, is many, 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 many facets of kink and complete tangent. But my fetishes back then did not even consider to be fetishes. Today they are. I'm like, oh, so society caught up to what I consider to be kink. Yay. Um, but, but back to the idea of leather being a trailblazer. And me too in leather one of the things that surprised me the most when it comes to gay bars and gay clubs was I was used to the leather part. My first experience in going out to gay club was Amsterdam and leather bars back at the Cochrane where it was that back then. I'm talking like a good 20 years ago plus. And, and that was my experience, which is very consensual. Uh, be it a verbal cue or a visual cue, it doesn't matter. It was based on consent. Uh, nothing would have done. And I was, by the way, you would relate to that. I was a 17 year old kid going into a, a leather bar, but nobody did anything without setting the stage for consent first and foremost, regardless of roles. Fast forward to today, and I'm looking at even my own behavior in my 20s in San Francisco, and I would not even hesitate a second to say I was rapey. I, me, my, my, my dominant personality and the allowance that, that the environment and myself given both to each other and then to the to the people around me, I was very rapey, and I'm looking at leather. Please chime in. Leather has been literally dictating what is around the bend in terms of how can we better, how can we be better as a community. Way before, I, I think that's true to a great extent. Um, a lot of it probably emanates from the concept of negotiation, because even when we didn't use that word, we didn't actually use that word a lot back like in the early 70s but that's what we were doing we were negotiating and saying what do you like what do i like is this okay for you oh good should i stop that start that whatever it might be so we were very used to that concept of having some kind of a conversation it could be one minute in the bar right, and right. or even seconds home. or even seconds yeah. or even seconds in a dark room but i do think that there's a few factors going on today first of all we're simply more aware of non-consent um, and, and, and that's a good thing. We should, we should be aware when consent violations happen. We also are in an environment, um, let's say the LGBTQ, and let's say the leather bar, for example. Um, the people, who, the guys who would go to the original leather bars, for the most part guys, were an affinity group. That's what, what they're often called now. In other words, they had a real commonality of orientation, sexual styles, desires, whatever it might be. And so it was relatively homogenous. So I'm not saying the consent violations didn't happen, but I think they were less so because we all kind of got each other. Fast forward to today and the kink community is a big hodgepodge stew 
of people of all orientations and from all walks of life and from all cultures and backgrounds and, and from sets of mores. So if you have a person coming in from a very heterosexual, normative, um, monogamous, whatever, and they see it one way, and then you have a gay guy who's just a complete, you know, slot and whore over here, you know, I'm not saying they all are, I'm just saying yeah. as an example. That's not a bad thing, <laughs> by know? the way, neither you or I will consider a slot or a whore a negative no, thing. That's a compliment in our world. Yeah. Call me that all you want. I, I, I wear it <laughs> as a banner. Yeah. But I think when you mix the populations, what is considered consensual and not varies. There was a time when a touch on a butt in a bar, in a gay men's only bar, would yes, it would be, nope, take your hand off me. But it didn't necessarily rise to the level that it does today in awareness because we are so hyper aware of consent. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I think culturally what's happened is the mixture has brought in such an array of people's perspective on what right. consent is and what is necessary to agree to or decline the negotiation moment. needs to step up and, and the verbalization of it, or, or at least presentation of it, because sometimes it's nonverbal, needs to step up to a whole other level. Yeah, if, if, if this was a gay bar in a certain day or a leather bar, and I walked up to you and looked at you in the eyes and very slowly started to put my hand towards your chest and just do like that, that probably would not have been... You know, as long as it was, we were connected and we knew and I wasn't like jumping it's at you, fun, yeah. it would probably be a cue that I'm interested in. You would say, ah, yes or no, you know, and that would be that. Right. Today, I think many people want that verbally articulated yeah. long before the touch happens. And I'm not even going to judge what's right or wrong, but that's where the perception of consent stuff there is a, a little sense of there is a sense of nostalgia that I, I i have to pick up both by tonality and reality because we look back at the more expressive sex positive times of our life which is basically in the past um and then actually compare it and contrast it with what was san francisco pre-covid uh, which was a, a sexual revolution san francisco yeah. has found its sexual roots and then some and then some uh I don't think there was one party in the last five years that I went to that didn't have a sex dedicated space or at least sex dedicated environment. Yeah. And I'm not saying that there was a dark room, but there was a place. Uh, yeah. and, and it became more and more and more and up to COVID uh, it became more and more and more overt. Uh, I think post COVID with all the pent up seven plus eight months of worth of us not having each other, we will get to a point of boiling over. I think the reverse of this. It will be gonna, crazy. It's going to be. It will be crazy. Balls to yeah. the walls, literally, figuratively, and otherwise. <laughs> this is just going to be. Um, but back to the idea of, of there is a sense of the loss, at least in terms of art, the way I see it. I, I, I don't know if I ever gave you that analogy, and I often share it, which is when I walk into a bar, I have an overlay in my head and it's not a joke, it's just the way it is because I've been training for the SPCA for four years as a volunteer. All I see is a room full of dogs. Uh, I really do, I see a dog park and I'm like who marked whom and who's connected to whom and who's playing with whom and who's sniffing whom and who can work with whom and who's work well in a group and who doesn't. That's just what I see. Uh, it's not necessarily I see them as dog, I just see those those relational, you know, dotted line, straight line, you, you, you know HR. So, <laughs> That overlay is there for me, but then if you take what you just said, which is a person cannot come to another person and touch and just stare at them one-to-one, -one, it goes here, but then there's the verbalization. Something is somewhat lost. 
Yeah. I, I think that's why some groups, and I'm going to point out gay men in particular, because I think they're the most vocal about missing gay male-only spaces, um, that especially gay male-only sexual spaces. Uh, there was a de facto when you walked in the door of certain places of realizing you were throwing yourself into a sex pit of sorts. Mm -hmm. um, whether it was overt or it was um, flirty, one way or the other, it was it was that. And there was kind of an acknowledgement when you walk in, that's what it's going to be. Certainly when you walk into a true sex space and you know if somebody were to touch you, you would typically not, you would maybe remove their hand if you weren't interested, but that was about as far as, as the violation went. Right. And I, I really don't think that we're that far off today in terms of applying right. what we knew then to the current situation because yes, I think many of us are more aware that we should verbalize with certain people that we're gonna be with before we attempt any kind of approach. But I don't think it's that far off. I think the vast majority of people get that concept. They do, they do. And, um, and so I, I don't, this concept of there's rabid consent violations all over the place, which if you're on social media, sometimes you, you that's what you believe is happening. They happen, absolutely. I, I happen. can give you our examples in dance clubs. Um, there are more often cases in people just reaching out without checking. Yeah. In any version with, well, then again, inebriation plays a really large role in that too. But let's shelf that and compartmentalize the idea of inebriated. And, and I, I can honestly say that seven out of 10 interactions are non-consensual around us. Yeah. Uh, and, seven out of 10. And I, t I tell people like uh, young gay men that go to their first gay circuit party where a lot of the guys are gonna be maybe a little enhanced and um, probably with their shirts off, if not more, right. and dancing. And they're very touchy-feely, lovey, you know, and, and that's where it comes from for, for most people. And if that is not a kind of environment that you're comfortable at, you should probably not go to those kinds of events. Those events are not going to change. Right. Um, but you don't have to change either. Oh, no, no. But, I, I, but, I, we know how to say no without feeling bad about it, by the way. Yeah. I will not lose. The, I miss oh. the dance floor so much, but yeah. that's a different story. Go yeah. on. I meant the you in the terms of the other person. Oh, but yeah. of course. Yeah. But um, so I don't think they're right for everybody because there are some people who simply are not that comfortable with that much closeness. And you get on one of those dance floors, everybody with the shirts off sweating, it's close. And so I, I think you have to judge consent based on the environment. Absolutely. And, and be willing to have that conversation about if somebody says, oh, that really bothers me. Oh, okay, sorry, I won't do that again. And the, the thing that I really don't like is when there is a, let's call it a minor consent violation that is blown out of proportion. Right. That bothers me because there's no dialogue then. The person who supposedly did the consent violation learns nothing because you've re responded with this incredible reaction. The person who feels violated feels more violated because they've gotten, rather than, oh, you know what? That was, wasn't good for me. And um, would you do this next time and just ask me? Oh, okay, sure. Oh. That's all it takes sometimes. Yeah. And you gotta educate people in the moment. If you overreact, no education takes place. Right. And, and sometimes education simply means I know how that person feels. Another person could feel differently. If I'm in a bar and somebody wants to come up and touch my butt, I'm really okay with that. I'll tell you no if I don't want that. 
I'll probably be flattered, but, but that's me. And that's not everybody. So, and then the benchmarking you're presenting is, is your level of comfort with your own sexuality in many ways plays out as this is a non non-consensual element. This is consensual. Yeah. I am in a sexual environment. This is a bar. This is my home uh, being gay men. And, and, and this is one way of expressing my sexuality. Uh, yeah. And everybody has, everybody has a right to their own level of consent comfort. And so I think that's important too. There are people who require a very, very high level, you know, literally 20 minutes of talking before we even ever touch. And that's okay. They're allowed to do that. Of course. Um, I think we do have to understand that we, apart from egregious violations, which, you know, there are some, absolutely. Um, we have to be comfortable with those various levels of understanding what consent is individually and be allowed to educate ourselves what somebody else is comfortable with and vice versa. So I agree. I agree. You were talking about uh, male only spaces versus not, and a lot of people like the yearning towards those because in many ways, uh, different sexual expression, different gender expression uh, in male only places, when they start mingling, uh, there, there is there is a backlog, there is a history, there is a charge that comes with those different expressions, be it by gender orientation or both. Uh, where are we when it comes to male-only places? Because I think we have very little left, even post-COVID. And I know it's going to be balls to the wall crazy. There's just zero doubt in my mind. We're going to all go crazy, both on our dance floor and otherwise. Um, I actually did want to touch you. No, no, let's go to the male-only places. Let's so we just, um, I'm part of the San Francisco Bay Area Queer Nightlife Fund. I'm on the steering committee. And we just did a, um, a moderated community discussion on inclusion. And one of the wonderful things that I think came out of that discussion, and if you go to our website, um, sfqueernightlife.fund.org. Um, you can say it again. sfqueernightlifefund.org. Um, <laughs> um, we, we report on it. And one of the things that came out of it was that we need to get better at inclusiveness generally, while at the same time understanding that affinity groups need to exist too. Right. So there's a time and a place for everybody to get together, everybody of every orientation, gender, race, cultural background, whatever it might be, there is a time and a place for everybody to merge and to accept and acknowledge that need to include. And we need to be better at that. We need to be in include disabled people who can't go down a flight mm -hmm. of stairs because the dance, the dance party is downstairs. And we need to have people at the door that don't judge somebody by the, the color of their skin when they walk in the door and treat them any differently than somebody else who walks in the door. And I could go on. But I do think that there's this need for affinity spaces. And I'll give an example. Many years ago, I was back East and there was a heterosexual BDSM play club that um, was very popular. And one of the leaders of that club came up to me privately at an event, took me to a corner and said, we have a dilemma. And the dilemma is that we are a heterosexual BDSM play club. That's what we've been for years. That's what we like being. And we are getting some pressure to let gay men and lesbians in. And they said, we have nothing against gays and lesbians, but we like our environment to be a heterosexual bunch of BDSM people playing. That's what we most greatly gravitate to. And there's a consensus in our group about that for the most part. And I told them, stick to your guns, stay what you want to be. You're, do, you're not disrespecting somebody because you want to have your own affinity group of heterosexual BDSM right, players. Right. You're not actively 
keeping people out for there's any no other exclusion. reason. There's an inclusion within the affinity group, which is a very different thing to say. Right. And there are other, uh, we, we all know there's a gazillion events now where men, women, and non-gender specific can go and mix in everything from social to play environments. And, and there's plenty of those, and those are important too. But I think it's important for people to have their own space. Gay men, or men who have sex with men, to use a more common term sometimes, <laughs> but gay men who are gay identified really do think and operate and function with each other differently. Yes. Consequently, when we are in our, our own space and we are not wondering if we are being looked at, if we are being judged, if we are um, part of a zoo <laughs> to look at the gay guys. Oh, no, we, 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 Palm Springs, real side note, when, he, when it was the hunt, hunters or one of the bars got taken over by the bridal showers, that was mm -hmm. just the end of, of, I felt, we felt collectively as they took over the bar, this is not our space. And by the way, for the record, I did not feel safe. Regardless of the fact that it was female, regardless of the fact that it was just a bridal shower, I felt like I was performative art for something that took all the sexuality out of a bar. Yeah. Please go on. And I, and I think for something like a bridal shower to go to a gay men's bar, you know, typically a gay men's bar, um, there is this absolutely kind of now you're on display feeling. But yet I could have another woman walk in the bar that I know is totally cool and be fine with it. It really does depend on context. So absolutely. you know, we all we all know the women that have been in our bars for years and we're entirely comfortable with them and we dance with them and we have fun with them and we whatever. can play next to them. We can play next to them. We can do whatever we want because they get us. Mm -hmm. And so it's not, it's really about context and, and, and intent. And so if a bridal shower goes into a gay bar, to me, that just feels like we're going to go to someplace different. And, and look at the monkeys or look at the show, look at the zoo, yeah. look at the dog and pony show. Yeah. It really feels performative, but they, I, I agree. It crosses the line. Back to our male-only spaces. How do you yeah. bring those back to San Francisco? Or at least what does San Francisco has in store considering you are part of the dialogue? We Oh, I, I think actually San Francisco is one of the better places that understands the need for affinity groups. Um, uh, and, and again, when I say affinity, I mean people that identify or have an affinity for each other, like, like gay men, lesbians, heterosexuals. Um, um, uh, there's a Didn't wonderful... Say, there's a wonderful trans-focused party here. It, there, well, there was when we had, when COVID, before COVID. Um, I could, I could go, there's, there's absolutely, uh, there's, there's um, dance parties for people of color. There's just, and they, they need places to feel comfortable with themselves like absolutely. we do, we all do. Because I think when we, when we are, we nurture ourselves and we have these safe spaces that we can go to, we're better when we then get together. So I'm 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 better with my lesbian friends and my heterosexual friends and my 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 friends who are of color, my friends who are of different faith when I'm an atheist, my friends, we all have differences. And there's no reason that we can't all get along, but I do think we need our own spaces. And and I, you just married the two. You almost made it uh, not prerequisite, but rather it's 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 relational. If you have your affinity groups space you will behave better with other affinity groups by virtue of having, you can express yourself in your affinity group. And then you go to those mixed spaces because you've just unleashed whatever, I call it steam, I, I call it steam valve release. If you don't have your steam valve release with your own group, in many ways you're pent up. And if your only expression is around other groups that 
for the record, they have different laws and different rules. All groups do. Affinity groups, by their nature, have a different way of interacting with each other than I would with them. So, go on. You know, I was in Las Vegas and I was at the Rio Hotel. And um, I, Las Vegas was my second home city for a long time. And um, I was spending three, four months out of the year there. And I was staying at the Rio this time. And um, I, I walked out of the restaurant and there was this long line of people in the most wild costumes, clearly having a fucking good time. They were laughing and you could just see from the expressions on their faces, they were having such a good time. And I said, what the hell is this? There were, there were like thousands of them. And it was a World of Zelda conference. Oh, nice. So here was a group of people who had an affinity around a single game. Mm-hmm. I think it's a single game. I'm not a gamer. So it's, think... it's a game world and it's 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 a single game world. It's a single game okay, universe. Yeah. Okay. I don't understand it very well. Gamer, gamer. I I was I've talked to a bunch of them and whatever. And if I had tried to jump in and be one of them, I would it I didn't it wouldn't have felt right. But I loved the fact that they were there doing their thing and having such a good time around this commonality, this affinity they had for this World of Zelda game. Yep. And um, I, I use that example because it's a it's a very non-threatening example for people because right. no one thinks of gamers as having an identity, but they do. Absolutely, they do. They absolutely, a lot of them live- We do. I'm, I'm, I'm a gamer, I'm a geek, I'm an animal watcher, I'm a manga reader, I'm a sci-fi reader, I'm a fantasy reader, and so yeah. forth and so on, oh God. So I, I, I think that that was a really good example of people who deserve their own place. We're gonna go and we're gonna live this world for a few days and isn't that wonderful? Um, and I don't think, I, I, I think if we don't have those kinds of affinity spaces for everybody, that we can have those affinity spaces for, that will be less as a culture because I don't think homogenizing everything is a good idea. No, it's not. And in many ways, it's the dilution of the most potent of spices, which is difference. Yeah, uh, I, yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want, you know, my lesbian friends to to necessarily adopt my gay male, you know, social mores, and I wouldn't feel like. And they vice versa. Should, yeah, it's, you know. Um, <laughs> I mean, obviously, civility and politeness, yes. Well, I mean, that's always a good thing, but- The world is my that. brethren. Uh, sorry, the world is my country. Humankind is my yeah. brethren. To do good is my religion. End of story, Thomas Paine. Yeah. The rest so, of it, yeah. up to interpretation, don't harm anyone, have fun. Yeah. So um, so bottom line is I believe that we need spaces for for people like gay men only. Um, and I think we need spaces with, with not just inclusion, but an extra effort of inclusion, yes. even including things that we don't, understand we're in this zoom world now and we don't think for example that oh some of those people need a sign you know an asl interpreter or they need captions or um i if this inclusion talk that i was part of i didn't realize that there's a lot of people with a certain kinds of sound sensitivity right and if they're in certain environments it's just like nails on a chalkboard to them and it always is and certain kinds of environments might be problematic for them. And I could go on for all the different types of, in, of inclusion that I thought, oh, you know, I, that's a good thing. I should think of that in the next time. So I do believe we, we need to be better at inclusion generally while accepting that people need their own spaces as well. And, and those are not mutually exclusive. I think, by the way, brilliant. And if I can emphasize anything, it's enhance both. 
because the person's person's identity within its affinity group and their ability to express themselves within their affinity group will only serve as a benefit to that mixture and that melting, uh, what is it called in the States? Melting pot? Cultural yeah. melting pot? Yeah. The cultural melting pot is our joint spaces. And when it comes to our word soup, we need that. And, and I feel San Francisco in many ways, at least recently, uh, you know, in the, in the earlier days of my San Francisco years, we had dedicated dance to sex clubs and we kind of got back to it. And now we had a really weird conversation of, well, what about differently gendered or different expressive? And, yeah. and, and I was sitting there, scratching my head. I'm like, if they identify as a guy and they want to have sex with guys, I am cool. Yeah. Like, this is fine. This is yeah. great. But, but that's my experience. Um, the, and, and there was a transition period where culturally some people had to wrestle with that. I think we're, well, we live in San Francisco, so I think we're, we're far better at that, that, in that, but, um, um, I've been around, uh, you know, trans men's a very good example. I mean, I've been in a lot of gay environments where, you know, some of the men were trans. It was very normal for me. And I, and I, and I, I didn't, I didn't think of it in the way that some other people where they really had to wrestle with it. And, and many of them did, and they've come to a, a better place with it. Um, but I think we have to take people at face value for how they identify and not only do that, but we have to respect that a good, here's a good example. You're going to come in, you're going to come into a dance club that doorman should, or woman or whoever, however they identify your person, should, <laughs> your person should be trained yeah. to not identify anybody who walks in the door by he, her. Yeah. They sh there should be no gendering at all at the door. There should, you should, the door, the door person should be trained to make the assumption that this person identifies however they do, but you should not gender them when they walk in the door. That's just one example. If you want a really hyper-inclusive space. Right. Um, and, and I think that we need to, as a culture, get better at that kind of stuff. And I think if we're better at that kind of stuff, people will respect the affinity spaces even more. I was about to say, can I give the other side of the same coin, which is in an affinity space, that dormant should be trained is, that is how that affinity groups looks like. This is how that affinity groups, the a good example is the leather bars of yesteryears. We were supposed to wear leather. That was a part of the, that was a part of the article of clothing when you walked in, you remember, uh, uh, a lot of the spaces literally defined you by your shoes. I, I had my, when my, my title year, it was a lot of fun to describe my, my cargo shorts on my uniform. So good luck with me <laughs> taking them off. But, but, but even in the same token, one hand, if you want to be inclusive, train them in being inclusive. On the other, when it comes to the affinity group, train them to recognize the affinity group. And I think there's a really interesting fun dialogue to have a better San Francisco. By the way, we are fortunate. We live in a city that's yeah light years ahead of this conversation, but we can share it. We can share the yeah. conversation. And you can take the affinity too far. A good example was there was a leather bar that shall remain nameless. It's no longer around. Um, that um, the owner um, had a door person and the door person wouldn't let a very, very well-known leather guy in because he had brown boots on. And this is a very well-known leather person who shall remain nameless, but and finally, someone came out from the bar and said, who, do you know who the fuck this is? No, they're coming in the bar. They're, they're... But you can take that kind of, that gatekeeping a little too far. Yes. yes. And, um, and you know, what's interesting about leather bars, since you mentioned it, back when I walked into my first leather bar in 1972, wow. um, which was the Gold Coast, so I kind of went right for the big kahuna right away. I won't blame you. Go on. Most of the guys weren't in leather. Right. 
they Jesus were in, right? remember they used to call them leather Levi bars. Yeah. They didn't the call them leather bars. Then. Yeah. If you, if you looked at like in the uh, Dameron's guide or whatever they did back then to, to list a bar, they would call it leather Levi. They never yep. called it leather yep. because Levi cowboyish butch for lack of a better term. White tank top or white t-shirt. White that tank was top, my Amsterdam. Yeah, yeah. jeans, boots, yeah. Um, maybe a little grungy. Yeah. Um, that was just as acceptable yeah. as the guys that were in full cow. And full cow wasn't as prevalent then. Mm -hmm. Full cow became more prevalent later. So it's fascinating that in my, in my opinion, based on my experience, the, the gatekeeping around full cow, full leather, was a later thing. It was not an origin thing around leather. Leather was a lot more accepting. As long as you fit into the general aesthetic of the crowd, you're probably okay. <laughs> yeah. You know? As long as you were hyper-masculine and it showed yeah. and, and and that fed that, yes. Yeah. I, I, and there was, and, and I'm not saying it was right or wrong, but there was gatekeeping around masculinity. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think we've changed around that. Um, but um with that said, you walk into a leather bar in San Francisco or Chicago, and probably the second or third topic was, what are you cooking? What's your recipe? Um, <laughs> and in San Francisco, it was fascinating. Opera. Wow. All, all the leathermen that I bumped into were into opera. And there was a time when um, the San Francisco opera would have a night where the uh, practically, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but a huge chunk of the audience was dressed in full leather at the opera. That was like a thing. And so, you know, it, it was it was not quite the purely hay <laughs> environment that we sometimes- Even do. the pure hay environment in my environment is always a joke because we all girl it up. We all quote the golden girls. We all say, hey girl, hey. It's, it's, we, we, we have evolved from this hyper-masculinity, men fuck men type mentality. Quick yeah. closing thought. Uh, uh, we've been through COVID in the last seven months, eight months. Uh, I actually want to dive in into your name, but we'll do it next time. I will have, if you have, if your time allows one day, we'll have another conversation, please. Okay. Um, thinking of COVID, thinking of gay men, thinking of sexuality. Uh, I know it's a big topic. We're not going to cover it in five or 10 minutes, but I'm curious, what are your thoughts when it comes to how are we navigating the now? How are we navigating mm -hmm. this, this in-between time that is becoming complicated? Our answers are, at least what I'm seeing around me, People go anywhere between complete carelessness, which is one end of the pendulum swing, and the other side is no one, which is the other end of the pendulum swing. What which I'm is thinking, me, by the way. Huh? Is you? <laughs> which okay. is me, by the way. Yeah, I have, I have um, um, long story, but the last time I had sex was February 21st. Wow. So I am one of those people that chose um, that route. Um, and that's not easy for somebody who's as hypersexual as I am. So, um, but I think people are doing it in different ways. I'm, I've been asked into pods all the time. Yes. And my, my problem is that I have so many, such a wide social circle that if I join a pod, it negates me being anywhere near this other pod. And it's a whole thing. For so those I who don't know, by the way, a pod is a group of people you are pre, go yeah. ahead. Yeah, pre -agrees. You're, you're, yeah, you're, um, you feel, comfortable being with from a COVID standpoint that you're all taking enough precautions and in some cases testing right. to make sure that you know you're you're all good. And um, but I think what's happening and I'm seeing it I I tend to have my finger on the pulse of sexual culture. You think? And <laughs> and, and I am seeing 
a lot of people making decisions where they are approaching it from a harm reduction standpoint, not a perfect standpoint, and being with one or two people that they really know well, sometimes there's exclusivity there. Sometimes it's, I at least know they're taking some precautions. Right. Um, there's, there's the potting we talked about where there's sexual pods where two, three, four people make an agreement that they're just gonna play with each other. And you're right, then there's the other end of the spectrum that is going, fuck it, I don't care, I'm just gonna do whatever I want. And that's a bigger element than a lot of people would like to. I think it's admit. actually, uh, I, I would put my heart uh, at, at assuming or assessing that it's half of our population. Uh, I, just by I virtue not. of yeah, just by virtue of what I'm seeing around me, which is to me was a surprise, considering this is an exponential. But this is not an element of judgment. I mean, no, I was, no it's not. It's it's a decision, and it's their decision. As long as they don't put other people at risk, and everybody's open and honest, it's their decision to make. I know uh, somebody down south, Southern California. Um, they hadn't played in since since lockdown, and they had a small sex party, and everybody they knew everybody. Tested I mean, like in their circle and everybody got tested within 72 hours before the party and they had a party. That's not a perfect solution. There's That doesn't mean that one of them could not possibly have been, yeah. but they took what they considered to be reasonable precautions yeah. that worked for them. And other people could say, no, that's, I'm not comfortable with that. And everybody- but I like your terminology decided. of harm reduction. Your terminology is, 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 this is, this is what they were comfortable with and they presented forward also Maybe, maybe an interesting tangent for another time, but I really do think Americans, specifically US Americans, um, they don't think of the holistic problem. They think of the immediate problem. And there's a very topical conversation to be had when it comes to, oh, I feel this is unsafe or safe. There is no other elements. Unfortunately, it's this yeah. in my world. Uh, I had to really push one of my friends to meet his parents by testing prior. And they were still within that phobic place of, and they were both mentally damaged for yeah. the lack of seeing each other over the course of the last seven months. Um, one of our friends, I, I had to push for all of us to test in order to have a dinner party because that specific, she hasn't seen anyone for mm -hmm. six months. And I'm like, this is your, 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 your psyche is going to frail. The loose ends are going to come apart. You need more than just being safe and healthy. Healthy includes yeah. in it a bigger thing. And the other thing that we have to accept is that COVID is a unique animal because it is airborne. That means if we leave our house, we are adopting a harm reduction model of some sort. Exactly. We may go out masked, we may avoid people, but the fact is somebody could have sneezed when you walked through that bit of air, you know, three minutes before you 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 walk through that bit of air and that you could get sick. That was that, it. Yeah. That's it. So COVID is unique, unlike something that's transmitted physical to physical. Uh, there's harm reduction is built into the model right from the get-go, unless you just don't leave your house. Exactly. So everybody has their own level of what's comfortable for them. And I, 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 I mean, there are occasions I have to admit, I've judged a few people for some actions, but I try not to judge because um, everybody's got their own situation and we can't know what they're doing. That could be a household of four that are all sitting there facing each other. We don't know. We, oh, I, 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 I are, yeah. Stories for a different time when it comes yeah. to yeah, little judgy Ron, because there the, are the elements that I've seen like, wait, what, how? And yeah. I just came, we just came back from PV. I, I've had private messages going, how did you go to a vacation? How dare you be around other people? I'm like, you don't know anything about my vacation, right. but gay men love to gossip and we do love to gossip. Um, 
last thoughts before we kind of wrap it up on on the first conversation because we talked about polyamory we talked about uh, um, affinity spaces we talked about sexuality just in general and your different facets in life any closing thoughts I think we're in a time where we're all pretty fucking stressed. We're stressed with COVID, we're stressed with an economy, we're stressed with an election. And even if the election goes the way I hope it goes, we are still gonna be you know, in a fractured country. We have stressors all around us. True. And if I have one bit of advice for people, it's to never assume anything about someone else and to take tremendous joy in whatever it is you're doing that day and try to think about your own life somewhat compartmentalized and not always affected by the outside world because if you don't enjoy that two hours of reading that book that hour with your partner having sex that um, that meal you're having that you really, really love, even if it's takeout, <laughs> whatever it might be, if you don't really completely enjoy that moment and you're constantly impacted by the outside, you're not going to be a happy person. So we talked about comp compartmentalizing. I think we need to be able to comp compartmentalize a little bit yes. in order to enjoy the presence of where, wherever we're at. And I guess the last thing is accept yourself and everyone around you in whatever they present. And if they say they're a certain way, you know, as Maya Angelou listen said, to them. You know, listen to them. Like, I think it's an Maya Angelou quote, you know, when they tell you who they are, believe them the first time. Yes. Um, and, but believe them, whether that's how they function in the world, how they're dealing with COVID, how they identify, where they like to socialize, what kind of sex they like to have, what relationship they're hoping for, whatever it might be. Um, yeah. So. Thank you. So, <laughs> Race, thank you for so, so, so very much. Uh, this has been a tremendous joy talking with you. Um, thank you for your time. Um, I guess we'll end on this note. Uh, be yourself, be kind to others, accept them for who they tell you they are. I love that. Uh, it has been a tremendous joy. Thank you, Race Benham. I'm Ron Zakai. This has been Little Gay Guide.